Hello and welcome to a landmark episode of The Paranormal Sun, episode number 50 of the Mainline series. As always, coming to you live from Tower Studios. And as always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, folks, episode 50. And if you take into account all of the news segments and different things I've done, we're knocking on 80 episodes of The Paranormal Sun. And if you take my appearances elsewhere and also the fortunate sun which is basically on permanent hiatus folks i've been on the air to bring you nearly a hundred episodes of content and i've enjoyed every moment of it it's had its struggles but i'll tell you what i learned something new every day and tonight's episode is astonishing to me the reason why it's so important is that when i started this journey I had a short list of some people that I've always looked up to, and they were kind of dream guests. Well, folks, I told you a long time ago that I had secured this interview, but I had some issues. So I'll get more into that in a little bit, but I'll tell you what, I saved this specifically for episode 50. I didn't want to wait for number 100, but I'll tell you what, folks, it's an astounding conversation, and it's something that's been on my bucket list since I started the program. And I'm so very, very thankful that I get to cross it off and that I get to share it with each and every one of you. Now, on tonight's episode, I'm not going to do a News of the Damned. We're not going to do anything else. I do have some shout-outs, however, and I've also got some news to share with you. So first and foremost, I want to give shout-outs to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, to Chris and Max in Illinois, and to Adriana and Nico in Texas. Each and every one of you have not only supported me as a friend and supported, liked my my programs on Instagram and Facebook and that, and listened, been loyal listeners, but you've also opened your wallets as well as your hearts, and you've supported the program and you've allowed it to keep going. So to each of you, this episode is dedicated to you because I couldn't have done what I've done without your help, especially in the early days where I barely had enough money to get things like paper and ink to print things. I mean, I really couldn't have done this without you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I also want to thank all of the chapter presidents. I'm not going to name each and every one of you off, but it's been an honor to know each and every one of you. To all the guests that I've had on and the guests that I've recorded and the guests that I will record with very soon, thank you so much. Again, this program is only as good as you, the guests, coming on, spending time with me, and I really, really do appreciate it. And last, but definitely not least, to each and every one of you listening to this, thank you from the bottom of my heart for making a dream come true, basically. I would keep doing the paranormal sun no matter what, but having so many of you listen to what I do all over the world, give me feedback, positive vibes, and tell me that you truly enjoy what I do. You really are the wind in my sails, and you just keep things steaming along here at Tower Studios. Now on that note, I've got some excellent news for you because we're in a celebratory mood. Now I had this up my sleeve, and I wanted to keep it a bit quiet. As we moved up to episode 50, I was getting pretty close, but in the last few days, it's just gone right on over the brink. So folks, 
The Paranormal Sun has now been listened to in 54 countries worldwide. 54 countries. That is amazing to me. In the last few days, I've had the likes of Kuwait, the UAE, Thailand, Cambodia, and all the rest of you all over the world. It's just been astounding and amazing to me. 45 out of the 50 U.S. states and the District of Columbia. So, look, again, from the bottom of my heart, it's so humbling that you find value in what I do. Again, I realize I'm not everyone's cup of tea, and I realize long format is not the easiest for everyone. Now, I told you a while back that I had joined TNC, which is, that's not canon, it's a podcast collective, and they've treated me very well. Zane over there, who was the founder, he, it it really is one of those things where it's kind of, it looks like it's too good to be true from the outside, but Zane is just out there trying to help people. And, you know, they've been amazingly supportive to me and the Paranormal Sun. And so Zane and TNC, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Now, TNC, one of the cool things at TNC and one of the cool things about me moving podcast platforms over to ACAST is that TNC can track the listening stats. So I've basically been there for two one-month periods. So in the month of March, the Paranormal Sun came in 14th out of 109 programs. And this last month, in April, we came in 15th out of 114. So folks, considering that many of these episodes go two hours and longer, I think it's amazing that so many of you listen. And again, I couldn't do it without you, and I'm just humbled beyond words that you take the time to listen to what I have to say, and it means the world to me, and I do my absolute best. This is what keeps me going and just keeps me firing to bring you more and better guests and better content. Not that any of the guests are not good, but just bringing you that diversity of guests and some of the great things. I mean, I've got several episodes lined up that I'm so excited about, and I just had uh, I had a bit of a chat with Nate, you know, Nate Odd, our chapter president in Pennsylvania, earlier today. And he just said something off the cuff, and it fired my mind for this awesome idea for an episode. And this, I think, is going to be a bit of a game-changing thing, because I don't know that anyone else has ever done this. And I think it's going to be pretty cool. Now, as uh, King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm probably wrong. But nonetheless, it's going to be really cool when we get to it. I can't wait. And again, this is just what gets me going. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And this is what really just makes me try and hone the craft and get better and better and better. So again, thank you, each and every one of you all over the world, friends, family, people I've never met, but they've reached out and given me love and encouragement on social media and elsewhere. Thank you so much. And I'm so very pleased that I get to celebrate this 50th episode with you. Now, after I get this finished and released, I'm going to go and have a celebratory cigar. I don't have many anymore. I know it's not the best to smoke, and I don't have them very often in general, but I haven't had one for a couple years. So I'm going to go and enjoy a cigar and a nice big glass of Tennessee whiskey that another friend of the show, Jake, in the Bay of Plenty, he got me an excellent bottle of uh, Top Shelf Jack Daniels a while back, single barrel, and I've been very careful to ration it out for special occasions because it's it's not cheap and I don't have a lot of money to buy more right now, but I'll definitely be having one of those. 
Now, folks, as for tonight's episode, it was a labor of love. And anyone who knows me in real life will tell you that I'm a stubborn man. JT is as stubborn as they come. I inherited that from my mom, and it's a double-edged sword because with stubbornness comes tenacity. And I've been sitting on this interview since January, and I really didn't know what to do with it. Well, actually, December of 2020, and I'm going to tell you why. So, I got to sit down with someone who, like I say, is just... Words beggar me. I mean, one of the greatest guests that I could ever have on the program in our field, in this field that I cover, the paranormal and the unexplained and mysteries, this person is just like right up there. And unfortunately, as the old Led Zeppelin song goes, nobody's fault but mine. It was the very first interview I did with my new microphone. Now, I didn't realize that the guest wasn't wearing headphones, and so he was listening to my audio come out of his computer. So we had a reverb. We had about a one second to one and a half second delay and reverb in all of the audio. And I'll tell you what, folks, I was heartbroken because this, like I say, this is a, a seminal moment for me. And not only was it awesome for me, but I want you to be able to hear this because it's an amazing conversation. Well, to my rescue came the knight in shining armor on the white horse, who's Scott from the old 77. So those of you who've been listening to the program for a while, Scott is very near and dear to Tower Studios and to the Paranormal Sun. And Scott is definitely my audio mentor. When I'm in issues over my head where I really struggle, Scott has always helped. Now, Scott did his very best to go through and strip out my audio. And then I had to go through and record about 40 different segments and reinsert them into this audio. So you will hear the occasional echo. You will also hear quite a disconnect between what I say sometimes and what the guest says. And that's the reason why. I'm always up front with you, but this is not something that I could toss out. I spent many, many weeks working on this, and Scott also spent his fair share trying to get it as best as we could. And again, because this guest was in Wales in the UK, we also had a bit of a delay. So there are a few of la laggy, niggly bits of audio, and I do apologize for this. And if it was just about any other interview, I would have just canned it, but I couldn't do this. And you will soon find out why. Now, all the mystery and all the bits of JT playing the, uh, the Wizard of Oz and hiding behind the curtain. Now you are about to find out who this astonishing guest was. And one of the coolest things about this, folks, was that oftentimes people in the public realm are different than they're portrayed to be in the media. This man was not. This man was everything I expected him to be, kind, courteous, humble. And I'll tell you right now, like I say, this was definitely bucket list material. And no jokes aside, when my broadcast career ends at some point, because even if I do it the rest of my life, I will pass away at some point. I will always remember this conversation I had. And it's astounding that I got to have it. So thank you very much. I do have one very last and quick shout out. Because without them, I wouldn't have been able to track down this person. So to Shelly and Bella at the Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful podcast out of the UK. Thank you so much. Because again... If it wouldn't have been for you, I wouldn't have been able to track down tonight's guest. 
And like I say, I wouldn't have been able to fulfill a life dream. So thank you so much. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. Lionel Fanthorpe is one of the most prolific writers in the world today. With the aid of his wife, Patricia, he's written over 250 books, covering an array of subjects from sci-fi to religion. But to describe this fascinating man as just an author does not do him justice. He's also a reverend with a love for Harley-Davidson bikes, an explorer who loves unraveling the mysteries of the world, a major contributor to paranormal research, and most importantly, a loyal friend and a man committed to his family. He has been president of the British UFO Research Association and is the president of the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena. He presented Channel 4's 40 in TV and has made many appearances at 40 in Times Magazine's Yukon, most recently in October of 2004, when he gave a talk on the Knights Templar and their ancient secrets. He is a fellow of the College of Preceptors and the Chartered Management Institute. He's a member of the High IQ Society Mensa and the Paranormal Research Society, the Ghost Club. In addition, Lionel is a Dan Grade martial arts instructor and a weight training instructor. He's also been a frequent guest on the late-night American radio talk show, Coast to Coast AM, which is where I first heard of Lionel. And one other thing, if you don't know Lionel, Lionel really loves his Harley bikes. And for those of you who may be wondering, hang on, that name sounds familiar, JT. Go back and check out my audiograms. I already did one about Lionel. So, without further ado, thank you so much, everyone, and I'm so excited to share with you this interview with someone who I definitely look up to and has forgotten more about the paranormal and unexplained than I will probably ever know. So, thank you so much, each and every one of you, and most importantly, thank you to Lionel and Patricia for taking the time out of your busy lives to appear on The Paranormal Sun. Again, folks, at the beginning of this interview, we just had a little bit of an audio issue. Again, bear in mind, this was one of the very early interviews. In fact, it was the first interview after I got my new microphone set up. So we had a little bit of audio difficulties, but specifically at the very beginning. So here, Lionel and I were talking about reincarnation and synchronicities specifically. And I'm going to share with you the synchronicity that Lionel was astounded by. And I was really astounded by. Now, all of these synchronicities for the Paranormal Sun really go back to when I first had Timmy from Ace of Cups readings on the show. And we started having conversations around tarot and other things. And from that time forward, folks, I started noticing more and more synchronicities. In fact, I had several more just this week before I was recording this. Well, anyway, the synchronicity in particular that... I told Lionel, and I, at the time, I was just floored by. I knew that Lionel had agreed to come on the program with me and have a nice conversation. And so I was out here in the studio working until about 7 a.m. because, depending on my sleep pattern, sometimes I'm up very late at night and I'll go in in the morning and have something to eat and go to bed. Well, anyway, I was in the studio until around kind of 7 a.m. I went out into the kitchen, and, well, first I went into the lounge, and I turned on the TV to let it warm up, as I often do, so then when I come in there, I'll sit down and I'll start flicking through the channels. Well, I went in the kitchen, and I boiled the, the, the jug or the kettle, 
as we would say here. So, you know, I heated up some hot water to have a cup of coffee. And I heard this voice in the front room, in the in the lounge or the sitting room. And it was Lionel. And I was saying, hang on. I, I, I put my hand to my head and I said, what is going on? So I hurried in the other room and I had left the TV on the History Channel. And lo and behold, here's Lionel on a program from the UK. And I didn't catch the name of the program, but he was being asked about exorcism. And so I thought to myself, well, look, John, that's okay. You know, Lionel is a pretty big celebrity in the UK. Uh, at various times in the past, he's been on lots of programs. I thought there's nothing to this. So I sat down and I rewound the program because I've got what we would call like TiVo here. And you can rewind and fast forward. And I rewound it and I found, because I thought, oh, well, Lionel will be all throughout this program. And I think it was an hour-long program. And no, here it was. Lionel was only in the program for about two or three minutes. I happened to turn on the TV just as Lionel was talking. And then I thought, well, yeah, that's okay. It would be a repeat, and this program will come on a lot, you know? So I went and I looked through the television guide on the cable box, and that program had not come on during the last month, and it wasn't scheduled to come back on the rest for another month. So for 60 days, this is the only time this program with Lionel Fanthorpe was going to be on, and out of that one program in 60 days, in a two or three minute segment, I just happened to turn on the TV at the time when he was speaking and hear it in the other room. And it was astounding, the synchronicity. I had to sit down. Uh, I'm not even joking. And the funny bit to me was that we don't get a lot of Lionel's work here. I mean, he's quite well known in the UK, but it's not like he's on all of these programs. I've seen him maybe a, f a handful of times over the 15 plus years I've been here and I've been watching TV. Usually I have to go and find his stuff online. So yeah, it was fascinating. And that's what kicked us off. That's what we were talking about as you pick up this conversation. And I really hope you enjoy it. Getting together over a certain problem. They might be fishermen. They might be um, pilots. They could be anything. They could be discussing a landing ground. They could be discussing... Where's the best place to go for fish for bass? And uh, <laughs> right, they just happen to right. get to the same place at the same time. It's really interesting. Yeah, Lionel, I was really floored. I've had some other synchronicities lately, but with that one, I literally had to sit down after it happened and just sit there in the chair and soak it all in. Yeah. Yes, that's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and as I say, I thought it may have been a show that was repeating a lot. Or you might have had a long segment, but it was only a two or three minute segment in the whole program. Well, that is, that is remarkable. It's like the uh, it's like getting you having a game of darts and hitting the inner target with your first dart, and you think <laughs> if we if we play for two hours, I'm not going to get that again. But uh, these things are very. Let me tell you, not a similar coincidence, but one that your adventure has reminded me of. Uh, many years ago, I used to be the further education tutor at Gamlingay Village College, which is Cambridge. And uh, because of the way the Cambridgeshire villages are arranged within the county, the way they've just grown up over the centuries, 
there aren't any other big towns apart from Cambridge itself. So what the Education Committee in Cambridge did was to arrange 12 or so small villages and then put what they called a village college in the center of it to serve the inhabitants of those 10 or a dozen villages. Right. And right, the day school, uh, you know, catering for school-age students was run by what they called the headmaster. Over him or her, there was the warden of the college who was also responsible not only for the day school, but for all the adult education as well. And it so worked that they had a guy that they called the further education tutor who was responsible for running youth clubs and all the adult education. And uh, he was responsible to the warden for that side, side of the work, just as the headmaster of the school was responsible to the warden for the education of school-age students. Well, I, I went there um, be about 19, I just think. I qualified in 63. I had four years in a comprehensive high school, and then that was my first ever promotion. So that would have been about 1967 I went And it was just one of those fortunate places where you meet a friend who is going to be a lifelong friend. Right. And I met right. a wonderful guy called Bill Farrer. And uh, that's spelled F-A-R-R-A-R. And Bill was the head of the science department and was a really good scientist as well as an excellent teacher. And anyhow, Bill and I kept in touch all those years from way back in the 60s and uh, never lost contact with each other. I would go over to Cambridge or Patricia and I would go to Cambridge to see him and then he'd come over and stay with us in Wales. And then I had a very sad phone call uh, from him saying that uh, he'd uh, just been diagnosed with a terminal illness. He had six weeks to live. And when it's your best friend, you know, you, yes. you feel heartbroken. Yes. And so every weekend, I went over for the last six weeks of Billy's life. I went over and spent the weekend in uh, Gamling Gay, Cambridgeshire, a little village just outside Cambridge, just to be with him, you know, share each other's company. Right. Then right. I got a phone call just after the sixth weekend from his village very nice guy, Father Ian, who said, Lionel, I'm so sorry to tell you that Billy's passed over. And one of the last things that he'd asked was for me to conduct the funeral for him. And I said, yeah, of course it will. So I went over, we got the funeral planned for Friday, and I went over on the Thursday night. It's a six-hour drive. It was 300 miles right across the country. And uh, I was going to stay the night with Father Ian in his rectory, and then we'd do the service the next day. Well, of course, we get two priests involved in a service, you get your prayer books out, and I'll do that piece, you do that piece, I'll read this, you read that. And then quite suddenly, I saw Bill. He looked, well, you could imagine if he'd had six weeks of a terrible illness, he'd gone down, he looked like a Belson victim when he died. Right. But, when he appeared right. to me, 
in Father Ian's study. He looked as he had looked as a young man when we were young friends together back in the 60s. He looked radiantly happy. He looked radiantly happy and he was sort of, well, it almost was literally coming off him in waves. He looked so young and so fit and so strong again. And he gave me a huge smile. And now Ian could see and hear nothing, only me. And Bill said, tell Ian that Lady Juliana was absolutely right. I took a deep breath and thought, Ian has not seen or heard any of this. If I now tell him, and this is the first time we've met, that I can see Bill's ghost of a bill. It was so substantial. It didn't look like a ghost. He looked as he had looked 40 years ago. And uh, I thought, never mind. If this was the other way around, Bill would have done anything for me. I don't care if Ian thinks I'm a raving idiot. I'll tell him. And I said, Ian, I have just seen Bill's spirit. He looked incredibly happy and radiant with health happiness and energy and he asked me to tell you that Lady Juliana was absolutely right. Now I expected that Ian would just shrug his shoulders or shake his head and say sorry old man doesn't mean anything but he didn't. He almost fell out of his chair couldn't speak for a couple of minutes and when he could speak he said in a, an awed whisper you can't have known that. Well, now I'm all agog. What can't I have known about Lady Juliana? And then Ian explained. He said he'd been with Bill in the hospital in Cambridge as he was actually passing. And before Bill slipped away, Ian had said, let me tell you about Lady Juliana. And she'd lived in the 14th century, as far as I remember. And she, among her other saintly adventures, had, well, her spirit had left her body and visited heaven for a few brief minutes of looking around heaven. And the other nuns, she'd lived in a religious house, the other nuns had clustered round her to make sure she didn't fall because her eyes had gone straight. And then she recovered and she said, no, no, my sisters, I'm not ill. She said, but my spirit left my body and I saw heaven. And of course, the other girls would have wanted to know, what is it like? And this is the famous quotation from Lady Juliana. She simply said, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And Father Ian said, you've just driven 300 miles to tell me that Bill says Juliana was absolutely right. So he's there and he is incredibly happy. Well, if you can imagine the two priests, we were sitting there like a couple of waxworks. And finally, Ian said, as he reached for his wine cupboard, I think we need some of this, Father. It produced a bottle which we disposed of that evening. And that is one of the most amazing things.
of all the things I've investigated, that's one of the most amazing things I've ever experienced. And when you were talking of amazing coincidences, it made me think of this Lady Juliana quotation of my great pal Billy Farrow. What do you make of that as an experience? Hello? Sorry, Lionel, I'm here. That's quite astounding. I've had two near-death experiences in my life, and my stepfather also had a rather significant one where he was dead on the operating table in the early 90s or late 80s maybe for about eight minutes, and afterward he described things he could not have seen, even if by some miracle he was conscious and uh, anesthesia wasn't working on the operating table. And the doctors told us that some of the things he talked about like what was going on in other rooms and in the hallway and that, it was just impossible for him to have been able to see that or, or know what was going on. Right. So it's as if in death, or in, shall we say, liberation from the human restrictions of life, if we're liberated from that, we seem to be able to perceive far more if you go to, in, in the case you described that while he was technically, clinically dead, he was able to perceive a much wider area around him than if he'd been depending on eyes and ears, tactile sensations of the body. Yeah, Lionel, I've been covering several reincarnation cases, or should I say claimed cases. It's always fascinated me, and it's one of those things where Children know things about past lives that even experts get wrong. For example, death dates, or how old a person was when they passed on. Now, upon further investigation, they've found out that in some of these cases, the death certificates do not match the dates on the gravestones. So even if the child knew the date on the gravestone, how could they know this different date on the death certificate? In the case I'm thinking of, is it's the uh, Ryan Hammond's Marty Martin case, and he said repeatedly to his mother, why would God let you get to be 61, then make you come back as a baby? Now, the person he claimed he was in his previous life, who was named Marty Martin, well, according to his death certificate, he was 59 when he died. Now, they later found a census record showing he was born two years earlier than thought, so Ryan was indeed correct. Yeah, that, that is very, very interesting. When, when we're talking about reincarnation, I came across a case long ago of a lady called Emma Turner, who lies buried in St. Margaret's Churchyard in Gloucester. She died in 1917, and she went to visit an old country house near Gloucester in Suffolk, and it was her first visit to that. Yet, as she walked up the drive, there's a beautiful garden around it. She knew what was going to be next, which tree was next, what flowers were planted around. And then when she knocked at the door asking whether she could look around the house, the guy who opened the door nearly fainted. And when he recovered himself, he said, please forgive me, madam, I didn't mean to be rude, but you are the image of the ghost who haunts this Wow. Now, she recognized everything as she went up. And the guy who was an old servant who'd been there a long time said that her ghost haunted the house. I found that 
Now, was she a reincarnation of someone who'd lived there way back? But uh, it fascinates me. They said she's just buried in the St. Margaret's Church in, in Lowestoft and so. Well, some of these instances, Lionel, as you say, for example, the Barbara Collin case, where she claimed she was Anne Frank in her former life. When her family took her to Amsterdam, she led them directly to the Anne Frank house, and neither her nor her parents had ever been there. It's it's just unarguable when you get a, a fact like that one. And, uh, it, it really brings us up to a sort of general speculation about uh, reincarnation and, again, about what ghosts are, the spirits of the dead, or... I've always been interested in theories of the parallel universe. The idea that right. if we, well, let's take a, a concrete example. Uh, you and I who share this keen interest in the paranormal and in unsolved mysteries, and we um, sort of got together, but what if in parallel universe, what if we hadn't met up? If you hadn't been able to contact me or, uh, you know, if my phone number or my email hadn't been available. But two friends, if I, I'd be very proud to call you a friend, um, with similar interests, are able to get together. Is there a parallel universe in which we do meet or we didn't meet? So that things would be different for both of us. As we're having this fascinating conversation with each other about the things we're interested in if we had met if we have met if we are doing this at the moment then our future will be slightly different we'll have these extra bits of information and sort of mutual encouragement that we wouldn't have had if we hadn't been able to pick up this conversation and that According to the, the theories about parallel universes, um, is that that separates one universe from the one in which we've met and talked to the one in which we haven't had the opportunity. Now, do those parallel universes, I mean, they're sometimes referred to as the worlds of if. And if parallel universes exist, is it possible that somebody can slide across from one to the other when in the other parallel universe he is slightly different? Well, we, we could, in effect, you know, one could meet one's other self, one's alter ego, if those parallel universes come close enough. And there's a sort of transit point at which we can glimpse the other one. Then, of course, there's the old theories about time travel, but when we see what we think is a ghost or spirit, uh, he's actually very much alive and he's time travel. That uh, someone could come from centuries in our past, or we might meet a very interesting character from somewhere in the future. Uh, or the third theory about paranormal beings is are they extraterrestrials who have got? Um, should we say, similar appearances to terrestrial human beings, and yet who have come to us from millions of light years away, 
traveling through hyperspace and uh, we find them so different they can go through things that we can't if they're hyperspace inhabitants they can just go through a locked door or through a solid stone wall and we say hey it's a ghost it's a specter it's a spook um and he isn't he's just an extraterrestrial traveler with a lot of ability that we don't have. you think ghosts are spirits of the dead well it's very interesting to me lionel as it is for so many of us i do think with so many of these phenomena just because one explanation may be true for one case it doesn't mean there are not other instances where it could be another explanation to the case. I was just picking up your idea, which is great, <laughs> but they could all coincide. Uh, you could have spirits of the dead. You could have parallel universes. You could have time travelers. You could have extraterrestrials. And what a wonderful universe they make for us. Again, one of those synchronicities I was talking about, I've been preparing an episode about another father, who saw some astounding things in the New Guinea skies in 1959. I'm sure you've heard of the Father Gill case? Yes. And he was questioned over and over again as to why he would go have dinner while this flying saucer was there, and he said, well, it was nothing out of the ordinary to us. He said it was as normal as seeing a Ford car. He said the entities he saw looked like people to me, and we thought if it landed... We would find out it was a crew of flyers from Australia or the USA, and they would come and have dinner with us. I thought nothing of it. Right. Right. With spirits and ghosts in the afterlife, I firmly believe there's something beyond this realm between my experiences and others, but especially some that my mom had. My mom did palliative home care for many years. It's something that is under-discussed, that when people are close to passing away or passing over, they often mention that loved ones come back to see them that have been dead for 20, 30, 40 years to guide them over and comfort them. And I'm sure you know many of these tales, Lionel. I have indeed, yes. Um, those who have known us, cared about us, or who are just simply very good and caring people, there doesn't have to be a particularly close personal connection. Um, they simply want to help. It's rather in the same way that if you and I were up in the Lake District or a, a New Zealand equivalent of the English Lake District where you've got steep mountains and deep water and you see uh, a very young child doing things he shouldn't, it's a dangerous one. Um, imagine that we were a couple of fishermen there with our boat and we see this lad swimming in water that's 60 to 100 feet deep and he appears to be getting tired, and he can't see which way it is to the land. We're going to pull our boat over there and help him in, or hold his hand as we turn the boat back to the beach for him. And there are, and I'm sure that there must be, these good and helpful spirit beings, then this is why that we find there are, when somebody is trying to leave this world or the, the spiritual world or paradise or heaven or whatever we want to call it, that there are some very good and caring beings there who will come and help the struggling human being as he or she is leaving this world. And uh, I think there's a great deal of sense in that when you said that 
there are so many cases in which those who are nearing the end of their earthly life will find that someone has come to visit and help them to see them across the last little bit in safety. That's, a, I think, a very important point. And there are also, I don't know what to call them, there are also some negative psychic entities. Um, in some of the religions, they're referred to as imps or demons or um, unpleasant things of that kind. But there are entities that seem to want to lead us astray, to cause problems for us. Do you come across any cases of those? Definitely in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it describes exactly what you were just talking about. And that's the whole point of monks memorizing this book before death, is so that they won't be led astray and led into a limbo state, and instead will move on through the journey of death and on to the next incarnation. Yeah. I go on from there to the idea that some of these odd entities, negative entities, can make their way into what we call haunted houses or haunted machines. You come across the case of that car with the 666 number, the, the famous haunted car that had all sorts of adventures. And we were called in, and I've actually driven that thing. Wow. Uh, the, with the owner's uh, invitation, round by... Um, Beachy Head, which is a terrifying <laughs> cliff drop sheer of uh, about 200 feet. And the road is perilously close. <laughs> and I more or less in that, uh, the, I shouldn't have, but I thought, I'll take you on. I'll, uh, you see what you can do to me. I'm an ordained priest. Did an exorcism prayer on the car before I got into it. And then I, Trisha came with me. We drove it round by Beachy Head to, within two or three feet that all the other people who have driven that car and had weird experiences in it and been frightened of it, it wasn't prepared to take on an ordained priest who knew the prayers of exorcism, which have been valid and effective for centuries. And I wondered whether there was some import. It, it had somehow taken possession of the car, but you know the the sort of situation where um, I'm, as you know, I'm very interested in martial arts. I'm um, fifth and black belt, and I'm um, yes. So I enjoy the physical side of a good scrap. And when you're sort of queuing up in an open competition, you look around some of the other competitors, and you think. I hope I don't draw him in the first round. He looks better than me. And I wonder whether what we might refer to as the demon or the imp um, will have a go at most people. But if he finds himself confronted by um, a priest or somebody who's a monk or somebody who's deeply into the spiritual side of life, that this nasty negative entity will think, I'm not taking him on. He knows right. the prayers of exorcism. Right, yes, I'll head the other way. Yeah, I'll head the other way. I'll, I'll, if he wants to drive by Beachy Head, I'll let him. I'm not going to try anything with him. 
Well, it's astounding you say that, because like the car James Dean killed himself in, Little Bastard, people who have had various pieces of that car have claimed it's cursed, and that it gave them bad luck, and they did everything they could to get rid of it. And Alex Guinness begged him never to drive it when he saw it a few weeks before. He said that car looks sinister. Yes. Yes, no. It, it does make you think that certain, what we call, for want of a better term, the negative entities, uh, can um, somehow infiltrate the pieces of a machine. They can be, well, you know, think about the whole diamond, not yes. machine. But the, the people who handled that and had the most unfortunate luck since they took and couldn't get rid of it quick enough, there was something in that amazing stone. And it's a little bit like that, you know, the famous song about Mad Carew. I don't know if it's in the general repertoire of folk songs in New Zealand, but uh, it's the one that goes, there's a little yellow idol to the north of Catman. A little marble cross below the town. And there's a broken-hearted woman tends the grave of mad crew. And the one-eyed yellow idol glances down. And apparently it was uh, the colonel's daughter who fell in love with Captain Carew. And they were hoping to marry. And it was her 21st birthday coming up. And uh, he asked what she'd like as a present. And she said... As a joke, oh, I'd like the green eye of the little yellow god, which stood just above the army camp with this, uh, with its group of followers. Carew goes out, takes the, uh, takes the, the stone, and then uh, he's badly injured in the, the fight with the worshippers. Then he gets back, and uh, he's resting in bed. And she goes down to the ball that her father has called to celebrate her twenty-first birthday. When she comes back to see if Carew was all right, there's a line that goes in the song, the stairs were wet and slippery where she tried. There was a wicked yellow knife in the heart of Mad Carew. It was the vengeance of the little yellow god. And I've uh, thought there was, you know, some sort of element of a curse on Carew because he'd stolen the stone from the little yellow god's eyes. When you are writing, when you're thinking of a plot for your next novel, I came across what I like doing is what's sometimes referred to as a genre of alternative history, where you take an event and alter it. Yes. Um, my latest book, one of my latest books on Joan of Arc, uh, she had a, a protector and friend named um, George of Armoise, who was a local warrior and landowner. And in the alternative version, and there are little scraps of evidence that this might really have happened. When she was all chained up at the stake and about to be burned, Armoise heard what happened. And he comes with his blacksmith and an alchemist friend who has a powder which, if thrown into flames, will create thick black smoke. So they go to the local mortuary and pretend that they've recognized the body of a poor beggar girl, teenage beggar girl, who died of malnutrition. 
and was just waiting for the uh, state funeral. And Armoise pretends that he knows her, that she's a cousin. And he bribes the mortuary attendant to let him have her bodies. I'll see. And uh, so he gives a few gold pieces to the mortuary attendant. And he and his blacksmith and his alchemist friend take the body of this poor little teenage beggar to the stake. They've got it draped over a horse with a blanket over it. They get to as close as they can to where Jonah has already chained up and the fire has been kindled. In goes the powder that the alchemist has made, which will cause thick black smoke. Under the thick black smoke, in goes the blacksmith. Snip, 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 snip. Joan is free, and the body of the poor little beggar girl is chained up in her place. As the cloud still in position, thick black cloud, Joan is over the saddle on Armoire's horse, blanket over her, and they ride away to safety. Now, the, the thing that interests me, particularly about that remote possibility, is that there's a tombstone, and it dates from about 50 years after the time when Joan was supposed to have burned at the stake. And it simply reads, in memory of Lord of Ar and his wife, the Lady Joan, could of course be a simple coincidence that he married somebody called Joan. But I love that kind of alternate history, where the uh, I do the same thing with the Mad Caroon song, where the Colonel's daughter has been with her father to Japan, where he was stationed for a while, and as a diplomat before he went back to his army command. And while there, she learns judo and taekwondo, and is absolutely formidable. And as she thinks, is my crew okay? She leaves the ball, goes up the stairs to his room, and doesn't get there too late to find him dead, but encounters the assassin with his knife out and at the ready, heading for Carew's daughter. And she goes for him, and to his amazement, because it's a girl, she is three times more dangerous in a, in a street fight, a hand-to-hand fight, than he is, Japanese right. martial arts knowledge. And uh, she saves Carew, and uh, they marry and live happily ever after. I'm a mug for happy endings, and love happy endings. <laughs> I listened to an interview the other day. It was not new, but it was new to me. You were on the Moore Show, and you were discussing these subjects, Lionel. Reincarnation, past lives. It was fascinating what you said. What about some of these instances of deja vu and even intuition? When we get a sudden feeling that we should be here, or we should move out of the way, and could this be our future self or our past self sending a message to us to say, Hey, dummy, get out of the road. There's a truck barreling down the road or something similar. I think that is fascinating. We've got this um, this idea of either coming back from the future, because it does almost make you wonder whether reincarnation works two ways. We always think of it as um, 
you know, 2,000 years ago, I was uh, an Egyptian slave in Pharaoh's court. And 1,000 years ago, I was fighting with uh, William the Norman. Um, and we don't, I think, look at the possibility that once body and spirit have separated at what we call death, that it can't go backwards as well as forwards. So that the man I will be in year uh, 3000 could possibly, when he dies in 3080, come back and say, ah, now if I could only go and get to great-great-grandfather before, right. using your right. illustration, when the truck was coming down the road and he was riding his motorbike, um, I could make things rather different for our family. So that reincarnation, we could always call that, you know, use it basically on your wonderful idea, um, we could call that pre-incarnation. <laughs> we'll put a new word in the dictionary, <laughs> write an article about it, pre-incarnation. Uh, yes, yeah, so it could be a caveman who remembers flying a helicopter in later life. Well, again, Lionel, there are stories of people through the ages claiming some rather extraordinary things, and they would usually be locked up in the lunatic asylum or burned at the stake. And maybe these were people who had these memories, very similar to the H.P. Lovecraft story, A Shadow Out of Time, where this alien race were taking entities' consciousness from all over the universe and swapping with members of their own race, the Yithians, so they can experience existence in another body or form and learn what other races or species have learned. Maybe it's something along those lines, but our own different incarnations instead of an alien race. Yeah, that would be absolutely And uh, I've got a story I'd love your opinion on. Who went up to Tacroglin Bridge? Oh, this is one of my favorites. And, uh, they took out a seven-year lease. You know this one well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll just go over the outline and then you come in. I'd like your opinion very much that, remember they... Um, that she was attacked and then they went off to Switzerland for her to recuperate where they bought two pistols so the brothers had one each and they also bought a quantity of Swiss steel ammunition and lo and behold the thing came back to have another go with Amelia an immensely brave girl and they had rearranged everything so that one brother was sleeping as close as he could get to the front door and the other one was in the room opposite hers she sees this thing coming across the lawn again as when it attacked her for the first time uh, she screams the brother who's just opposite is beside her in seconds with his gun and the uh, the swiss steel is a rather unusual greenish grey. The other brother belts out the front door and shoots the thing in the leg. When they eventually track it down to the ruined chapel where it's hiding in the grounds, they find an open coffin in there with somebody who's obviously been dead for some time. And there in the leg, when they examine it, they take it to the crossroads it about and burn it they find one of their swiss steel pistols now i had i was 
including that in a lecture. And I had a member of the audience, who's another priest, who came up with a what I thought was a wonderful explanation. He said the, the so-called vampire was just a very unpleasant but perfectly normal human being who had been hiding out as some forms of mental illness drive people in this um, sort of tomb in the old ruined chapel. And when uh, one of the uh, one of the Cranswell brothers shot him, he managed to limp back to the open coffin he'd been sleeping in. And uh, then when he recovered enough to move, he managed to get the pistol ball out of his leg, shoved it into the leg of this long dead uh, coffin occupant, and took some blood from that leg, smeared it on the face of the corpse round the mouth, and also on its hands. And then he slunk away, and by the time Amelia and her brothers got there to find out what was happening, all they got was this very old corpse with the real uh, mugger's uh, blood on its hands and mouth. And he said, so I said, well, what happens next? He said, well, by fiddling with his leg wound and a corpse, he's given himself gangrene. So within a month, he'll be dead. That's why there are no more visits from the uh, Kroglin vampire which I thought was an ingenious explanation. Lionel, I heard you tell the same version of this tale on Coast to Coast. The only part I hadn't heard was that the pistol ball in the leg was Swiss steel. So it was definitely one of the brothers shot, as you say, as this type of steel shot was quite uncommon at the time. It just goes to show that I feel people in general do not give humans enough credit as far as when they are cornered, how ingenious the mind can be. The fact that this person could have been so onto it that they said to themselves, let's do the old switcheroo. I'll go on with my life, and I'll let the corpse take the blame. But, uh, I think it's a fascinating story. I, you know, I read it. And again, when you're saying that human beings can do all sorts of amazing I, I'm very, very impressed with Amelia. When her brothers had taken her to Switzerland, she said, we got a seven-year lease on, on that place. And you could tell that, she was the lady housekeeper who had to make the money stretch. <laughs> and never mind any degree of fear. I'm going back. We're going to get, we're going to get our money's worth out of that struggling grave. Well, Lionel, I know all the support and amazing roles that Patricia has been in your life. I was raised by my mother, who is basically both parents. I've been very fortunate to have her in my life. She taught me to do all the things that my father should have, like hunt, fish, drive a car. So I've never doubted the abilities and willpower of the female mind. And Vi has been the same. She's been really amazingly supportive of me in my journey. If it wasn't for her, I would not be doing what we are doing right now, which is a highlight of my life. Lionel, if you would have told me five or ten years ago, you'll get to sit down with Lionel and discuss some of these same cases and topics you were reading about or hearing him discuss on radio or TV, I would have said you're raving mad. There's no way that's going to happen. But I'm sure glad it is. Well, may I just add to that that I'm absolutely delighted to meet you for our conversation, and that it's lovely to meet a friend. And I said I, I would be proud to be one of your friends. We must keep in touch. And 
there are so many strange and interesting and mysterious things in this world. And when I, as a priest and a theologian, and a, in a very minor degree of philosopher, try and sort out what life really means and what it's about, um, it's wonderful to look at these mysteries. And one of the explanations, I think, that it's good to look for the rational explanations as well as when we can. Of course. That mandrakes apparently contain a substance called hyoscyamine. And uh, it's not poisonous, but it causes hallucinations, really wild hallucinations. And I came across a theory a while back that this could well be why witches, medieval witches, believed that they were flying on broomsticks, that it was, that it was totally a hallucination, and it right. followed um, the eating of mandrakes. And they hallucinated to uh, really to believe that they were flying on these broomsticks. And if more than one of them shared with her sisters the idea that this was really happening, well, of course, this reinforces the hallucination and uh, i would like to would like to just um join in with you in uh, your mention of patricia and your mention of the tremendous support that you get from your partner and um, without her i really we've been married 63 years married in 1957 and uh, without her i couldn't have done I think more than perhaps one fiftieth of the things that we've done together. Uh, she's wonderfully practical, and when we go to these spooky places, she is also absolutely fearless. And uh, when you think, well, this lovely partner of mine wouldn't be afraid to do that, so I've got to lead the way. I'm the bloke. I'll, I'll go in and tackle whatever it is. So. Uh, Especially with my, uh, you know, martial arts background, I, I'd like to know. I'd like to know whether um, a, a fifth dan martial artist could take down a werewolf or, or a vampire. <laughs> Should they exist? I'd say, well, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not one of the poor frightened farm workers that you've just chased out of the farmhouse. I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm a martial arts exponent. See ya. Let's just see how a vampire likes to chop across the throat. Well, Lionel, as you were saying about all of these subjects that we love so much, it's rather astounding to me because at a young age I was a very avid reader, and one of those life's mysteries or synchronicities to me is that we grew up in the wilds of the Pacific Northwest, in the mountains, so the equivalent of in the UK, it'd be like growing up in Snowdonia or the Lakes District or maybe in the Highlands in Scotland. Now, despite the fact we were basically in the middle of nowhere, the back of beyond, we had this amazing little library of hand-me-down books that we had accumulated over the years, or books people had left to us. But some of these books we had, Lionel, it's astounding, really. Flying Saucers Are Real from Frank Edwards, some of John Keel's books, The Valiant Thor Story, and on and on. I just find it such a mystery of life and a grand coincidence that I had this veritable Aladdin's cave of amazing books that you either can't find anymore, or they cost a fortune. It really helped sow the seeds of my interest in these subjects. And then as I grew up and had access to libraries, and started reading on others, like Charles Fort and Robert Ripley, 
and I feel it's important to credit those who have gone before. This is why my news segment is The News of the Damned, in Charles Fort's honor as an homage to him. It's such a small world because as I started releasing episodes, and in particular my early episodes on Charles Fort, I had a dear friend who I've known for half my life, and indeed, he's family in my eyes. He's a brother. Anyway, he got in touch and he said, You read Charles Ford as well? I was astounded, Lionel, that we'd known each other so long, and neither one of us had an idea that we had this common interest in Charles Ford, and indeed in Fortiana. It's an amazing, amazing thing that, you know, when we've got this mystery, this love of mysteries, this... uh, desire to investigate mysteries which you know which you and i share um that you've got another friend who's got the same and you didn't know about it it does happen sometimes <laughs> that we get into um you know they they, they called the, that series i did called 40 and tv after his, yes. after his name crept into the into the dictionary as if something is 40 and it's an unexplained mystery and uh, he was a wonderful character Really wonderful character, and uh, and another thing I'd uh, love to get your opinion on, and you know the mystery of the missing lighthouse key, eighteen ninety nine. There was Jim Durkett, Tom Marshall, and Don McCarthy, who all just vanished in December of nineteen hundred. The lucky boy out of that four man crew was Joe Moore, because he was ashore on leave. And uh, it, it's just, you know, one of the many unsolved mysteries. I wondered what your view on that was. And the really interesting part to me as well, Lionel, in this case, didn't the keeper who was off duty ashore have a premonition of something happening? Yes, he did. He did. He was very, very worried. about Because, I mean, if, if you're one of the lighthouse keepers, you keep sane by becoming close and caring friends. So they were more like family uh, just yes. than... Uh, friend just than uh, officers who were serving together and uh, yeah joe moore was very worried about them. and it, it it makes you think do we have any sort of formal perception which takes us beyond what we can see and hear and touch and is it something deep down inside us which reaches out we become very worried about an event and then that event actually happens we it's almost as if the what for want of a better term we could call worry or anxiety is triggered by something inside us something it's you know we talk about the sixth sense don't we something it's as if we got this sixth sense and uh yeah joe moore i'm sure was worried about something going wrong on the island. Um, it was one, you know, one of the flatlands. Well, over the years, the amount of stories I've read about people's intuition certainly backs that up, Lionel. From people deciding last minute not to sail on the Titanic, people canceling last minute on certain airline flights, last minute due to premonitions, the famous Flight 19 case lost in the Bermuda Triangle area, where one of the pilots decided last minute he wasn't able to fly and asked to be excused. He had a feeling of foreboding and dread, and the flight officer, Charles Taylor, said he would deal with him later. But of course, there was no later. Right. Right. Yes, it, it is. Oh, look, I think oh. we can call oh. it premonition. 
but it, it is something that we've got. I feel it's a, uh, something which perhaps neurologists in a few years' time might actually have isolated and say, oh, yes, it's that group of brain cells down there which is able to connect by some mysterious process which doesn't need a sensory organ attached to it via the body. It can take something in directly from outside, which is maybe what ESP is. Well, I'm sure you've heard this saying, that the older I get, the less I know, and I'm definitely an advocate of that. And these are the sorts of scientists and experts who I come to respect. The ones that admit we don't know everything, versus those who claim science has all the answers to everything that's ever happened, and if you can't dissect it in a lab, it doesn't exist. know what you mean. Yes. And uh, we do need to get outside the lab and outside, almost outside of common sense and to be, well, this is what Fortianism is really all about, because this is what Fort tried to do, that he never dismiss anything as being impossible until he himself or a colleague that he trusted had examined it open-mindedly. It was that Fortian open mind that made him the, the man that he was. Did you ever come across the strange tale of the green children. Oh, yes. I'd love to hear your opinion. Well, of course, you've done an excellent job giving a background of it on many programs that I've heard before, Lionel. One of the fascinating pieces of the story is that the children looked for the beans in the stalks of the plant, and they wept when they found nothing, and had to be shown the beans were in the bean pods. Now, that was one of the hypotheses I found particularly interesting, was as... They could eat no other food for months, like bread or cheese, that maybe if they had only ever subsisted off of green plants and vegetables, maybe the chlorophyll had something to do with the green skin hue. But this tale, Lionel, is in the subject staging ground. I must have two or three hundred subjects in the backlog to cover, and I'm adding more all the time. Life is so short, and I have so many of these fascinating things I want to introduce others to. Woolpit is definitely high on that list. Yes. Yeah, the, um, the thing always um, interests me particularly. The girl's name was, um, no, they, they, she gradually lost, the boy died young. Right. Um, and the girl grew up and married a man from King's Lynn in Nor Norfolk. And it always intrigued me because my grandfather and all the previous fanfare had uh, actually given their name to a little settlement. There used to be a village called Banthorpe, uh, very close to King's Lynn. And as King's Lynn has expanded over the centuries, it's taken in what was this little village. Now an, wow. a an area called Fansel Lawns, <laughs> which is part of King's Lynn. It's gone down from being an independent village to uh, <laughs> just being one of the suburbs. And my grandfather, as I said, that I know of, and his predecessors all came from that village. And it was, it was subsumed. Uh, they came from King's Lynn. And I, I sometimes wonder with a, a big, broad grin on my face, whether I'm the remote descendant. 
of the little green girl who married a man from King's Lynn. She could have been, I mean, they were, that was 12th century during the reign of King Stephen. So she'd be my sort of great, 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 you know, an innumerable number of great grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does, it does, when you, when you come across somebody mysterious who has lived where your ancestors live, you do rather wonder whether you've got any of their DNA. <laughs> no, uh, fair enough. I'd ask myself the same thing. And, uh, but it, it, one of the other theories about them was that they had been forced as children um, because copper was very important and very valuable in the 12th century. Whether the, yes. somebody who'd owned a copper mine had got these narrow tunnels through which these children who were digging it out had been forced to crawl. And if you've spent probably not wearing many clothes as you wriggle through these mine passages, whether you've actually got some of the copper onto right. your skin or ingested it. And that was that was why the boy dug and she right. being tough survived. And uh, once she was free of the copper mine, her body was able to do, dispose of the remaining copper, and she lived a normal, happy, healthy life. And just a thought, I'm fascinated. No, I'm the same, Lionel. And you see, I had never heard that theory about the copper mining. I'm forever learning new bits and pieces on so many of these cases, both during research and in general as I see articles or watch or listen to new programs. It's always fascinating to hear a new spin on an old tale. Yeah, oh yes, this is why we like we love investigating. Somebody will come up with an idea that hasn't occurred to us that uh, seems very realistic and very probable. And uh, have you come across the story of the Roman ghosts in Roxham Road? You know that um, because Patricia and I came from Norfolk originally, and uh, the Broads were a wonderful holiday centre. There were little restaurants and shops all around them, and we would hire a boat and go down the uh, the river. The, uh, the boat, the broads came off the rivers, and uh, Roxham Broad was a particularly big one. But centuries ago, a millennia ago, um, it wasn't wet. It was just a, a sort of a natural sinkage in the landscape. And there are a number of people who swear that they've seen Roman legionnaires marching across, rather like uh, saints walking on water, marching across where the, the broad and its water now is, as if they had marched that way when the Romans occupied England uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. No, Lionel, I don't think I've ever heard of that, but I do recall watching many years ago either on In Search Of or maybe Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, and they covered a very similar case in the UK. This instance was that there was a gentleman working, and he saw these legionnaires march out of the wall of this cellar and march across the floor and disappear into the opposite wall. Of course, he nearly had a stroke seeing this, but when they went back and dissected his account, they found that these Roman soldiers could not be seen from the knee down. Now, they later discovered that that was the height of the old road back in the Roman times, when the Romans were in Britain. Yeah, I've come across that. It's a fascinating thing. You said from the knee down, they were not there. 
Yes, that's a very interesting place. And it, it makes you wonder again whether they are not so much the, the, the psychic, uh, psychical survivors of the Roman soldiers who once marched that way, as if there's some kind of recording or impression left on a screen that, you know, when you and I watch uh, an old silent film, shall we say, with Laurel and Hardy or Charlie Chaplin, um, they have long been dead, but we are watching them and they seem to be young men in their 20s again, doing all the crazy things they right. do to make us roll right. after. And is it that what we, in some instances, think of as a ghost or a spectre is a kind of psychic film or a psychic recording in some zone which is sympathetic to and sensitive to the the taking of recording it's just a thought we could sort of put that in with our general thoughts about what are ghosts are they just recordings I fully agree, and one of the things I've heard put forward is that quartz crystal, or bedrock with quartz crystals in it, could perhaps store and later release this energy. Right, and that of course jars my memory with what I've heard about the, the crystal skull. Oh, yes. Mike Mitchell Hedges alleges that he found, and uh, was it Mayan? Was it Aztec? Um, it's generally been regarded by the experts as at least 3,000 years old and possibly more. And uh, if Mike Hedges was telling us what he really found, it was at a place called, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, Lubantum, that's L-U-B-A-N-T-U-N, and that's in Belize. And in his opinion, it was associated with Atlantis because this village of Levantin um, was linked with the uh, possibility of the Atlant uh, you know, of the Atlantis. Right. And of course, what that it's when you mentioned the crystal, there's something very peculiar about that skull. And uh, I think that I remember reading somewhere that the cleaners, when it was in the uh, human section of the British Museum, that when the cleaning ladies were working in that room, they asked the duty curator to cover it because it gave them a horrible feeling. They couldn't work uh, with uh, that thing staring at them. And he would come in because he cared about his staff colleagues. He would hang a black cloth over it until the ladies had finished doing that section of the museum. <laughs> I'm fascinated by some of these items and artifacts that have been discovered. And at the same time, it's important that we keep an open mind and not ascribe it to the curse of the pharaohs or a voodoo curse or black magic. Now, I saw an interesting one a while back, and it was new to me. It was an Egyptian artifact, and I believe from memory it was a canopic jar for storing the pharaoh's organs after death. And this was at a museum, and I'm pretty sure it was in the UK or maybe Germany. Now, what they did was they showed this video of this jar moving in a circle by going back and looking through the video surveillance footage. Now, like most canopic jars, it was shaped like the person it was made for. I think it was a pharaoh. So by watching this video, you can see this jar slowly rotate in place 
180 degrees so that the back side of the statue is showing. And of course, many people have said it was the curse of an angry spirit upset from disturbing his tomb. Now, I was fascinated when they went through it and discussed all of the possible or purported explanations and what the actual explanation was for it. It's that the base of the jar that sets on the glass floor of the case, well, in the base of this jar, the statue had a very slight concave shape, very hard to notice without measuring it. And so what was happening was that the vibrations from the trucks and lorries passing the street in front of the museum was very slowly and imperceptible to the human eye over time. These vibrations were rotating the jar in place in its sealed, locked, and alarm case. All they did in the end was place a piece of paper or cloth under the jar between the jar and the floor of the case, and bingo, it stopped moving. Whoa, I find that fascinating. And I can, I can go along with the idea of the lorry disturbing it, Although Claude Road, where we live, is basically residential, it also connects two very busy roads along which commercial traffic move, and sometimes a very heavy, you know, 8 or 14 wheeler with 20 tons on board will come down. <laughs> what is this? Normally doesn't get anything heavier than a small car. And we can actually feel our house shaking mildly when... 20 tons of freight <laughs> comes past only, um, say, 10 feet from our front door. And uh, so what a heavy lorry could do to the canopic jar, I could go along with. And these are the sorts of investigations and results that I truly applaud. I always say on the program, I have plenty of room for skeptics. My issues are with the true debunkers who go in with preconceived notions or that go into a subject with the intention to make the evidence fit their worldview as opposed to following the evidence to the truth, no matter how it may turn their beliefs on its head. Right, right. And uh, like you, I feel that uh, that frame of mind of the person who has made up his or her mind already that there is no unsolved mystery, that there are no ghosts or UFOs or vampires or werewolves. Um, it, it's like blindfolding yourself before you go out to examine an art gallery. And that's uh, really what they're doing. <laughs> they're describing pictures they can't see. Now, another thing I'd love your opinion on um, is the, the so-called power of holy water and water from holy wells. If I just give you one example, when we lived in Deerham in Norfolk, one of the most interesting things in our church, our church there was uh, dedicated to St. Nicholas. And in that churchyard was uh, a tomb which had originally held the body of Princess Withburger, who became Saint Withburger, and who died in the year 654. Now, she had two older sisters who were also deeply religious girls and had, because they came of a royal family, they'd had money to spare, and they'd done so much for the poor and in nursing the sick that they really did deserve the reputation they had of being truly good human beings. And her two elder sisters had died before she did. 
And they had been buried in Ely, which was regarded as very much a holy place. And the monks of Ely, I think, I suspect, did a little bit in the tourist industry, <laughs> attracting people, attracting pilgrims who would spend money in the town when they came to see the holy relics. And so when Wittberger died in 654, the people of Deerham wanted to keep their saint in their churchyard. And so she was duly buried in this, this tomb in the grounds of St. Nicholas' Church. And the monks of Ely wanted to take her body to Ely. So what the rascals did was to lay on a feast with plenty of wine uh, in the town hall, uh, guild hall at Deerham, and got every, everybody was invited. So you've got the, the citizens getting as drunk as could be and eating so much <laughs> that they just want to go to sleep. And once they thought they'd got everybody out of the way to guarding the tomb, the uh, monks of Ely stole with Fergus's body, carted her off to Ely to <laughs> bury with her sisters to attract more tourists. And when this had happened, the uh, tomb that she had lain in a while filled with water, which then achieved a reputation for having healing powers. And Deerham Churchyard got more tourists and more pilgrims to try the holy water than it had ever had when Princess Wisberger had been there in person. <laughs> and I'd love to know what you think about how much of it is the power of the mind. If somebody with some awful illness or infirmity takes what he or she believes to be holy water, sacred water, full of holy power, and recovers. And there are so many of them, so many stories of those who have done it. And I just love to get your view on how much of it is in the mind of the person being healed, or is there really some extraneous power in that water? Well, it's a fascinating subject, Lionel, and I'm sure you would remember Art Bell's experiments with using listener prayers. So, for example, he would ask listeners to pray for a hurricane or a cyclone to move away from a certain location to another one, or pray for rain in an area with fires or drought. I never knew Art personally, and I never got to speak to him, but from what I saw and what others have said, he had that skeptical mind. Art got to the point where he banned these prayer experiments because he was convinced people's thoughts and prayers were impacting things in the physical world, and Art believed in the old saying, as above, so below. He didn't want to be responsible for unintended consequences. For example, maybe that rain would extinguish the fires, but then cause a flood, or cause drought where the rain was originally meant to fall. So I definitely think personally, part of it is the mental effect, the amazing power that our minds have to heal our bodies. For example, earlier I was talking to Vi, I think it was yesterday, and we were talking about the psychosomatic illnesses that people go through. I often personally believe that when you're a workaholic, as I've been most of my life, your body gets to a point where it says, if we give you a bit of a sniffle or a bit of a sneeze, 
Maybe you'll think that you're getting ill, and maybe you'll back off and give us some rest. So I personally feel it's a bit of so many things, all in different combinations. But I also truly believe there's more than a grain of truth to so many of these legends and tales that have been passed down to us over time. And if we move even past the spiritual plane, you know, religion, God and saints perhaps, it could be the dead person at the time she was living. She had such a positive aura that maybe even in death, she passed some of that positivity and love into this water, as you say. Perhaps on, let's say, a subatomic level, we don't understand. And then this water, just like Lourdes in France, for example, everyone knows, knows Lourdes around the world, and so many of these tales of people being healed and cured of afflictions. But me personally, as I say, each person has got to come to their own conclusions in life. But to me, I definitely believe there's something more to it than simply the placebo effect or minerals in the water. I definitely feel there's more to it. I've already said, of course, that I believe there's so much more to life than us just running around in our skin jackets, so to speak, and just the body and mind. I find some of these tales, accounts of people, as you say, making full recovery from things that they have no business recovering from because of prayer and love and positive influence. Although it's a newer term, I'm sure that you've heard of it. It's a newer term, but an older phenomenon. The idea of manifestation, that you can manifest things by thinking about them and about willing them into our existence. Yeah, that I would go along with you 100% of your arguments there, John. I think that's there are so many more. It may be what fascinates people like you and me and gets us examining the mysterious um, because we are convinced that there is more than what can be seen and heard and touched. That That's only the... It's almost like the, the lid on the pie, on the cross on the pie, and all the, the really powerful stuff with the flavour in it is underneath that fairly innocent crust. That uh, the, the mysteries and the power of the mind. Um, as I said, it's, it's wonderful to have a chat with you about this because I think we are uh, two typical members of the group who share these views that the world, the universe, is an almost unbelievably mysterious place. And that the more we find, the more we discover, the more we seek out explanations, all that we're doing is opening the door to yet another amazing subterranean tunnel that goes through apparent reality to true reality. And uh, I love looking. <laughs> <laughs> At 85, I hope I've got a few more years to look. Well, I can tell you, Lionel, that everyone I've known from the UK that's into this sort of thing that we enjoy, the mysteries and the Fortean, everyone from the UK I've spoken with about it, uh, and unfortunately, again, as for us in the U.S., I wish I would have come across your work much sooner. But once I did, and it was through Coast to Coast AM, I just thought, who's this individual who's got so much to share and can just reach into so many of these from memory? And Patricia as well. Obviously, with all of your investigations, and I can tell you that you made such an impact on the field that everyone I've spoken to from the U.K., when I mention the Fanthorpes, they always say, oh, yes, Mr. Fortian. 
Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> well, it's a lovely compliment. Well, thank you for that, John. Appreciate it. It's well you know, deserved. When, well, when you're trying to write something, share some ideas with friends who have similar approaches to life. It, it's so encouraging to know that um, that there are people who read it and enjoy it, and, and that is the incentive, I believe, that every writer needs to know that there is someone, some very nice people, who actually want to read what I've said and to share those thoughts and come back to me with them. I fully agree, and I've always been a writer as far as my artistic outlet goes. I've never been able to draw or paint very well, but writing led into this journey that I'm now on, and I 100% agree this is the same thing that gets me up and going in the morning, is when I hear people say to me, I listened to your episode on Wendigo's, or I listened to your episode on the Farmington UFO Armada, and it was so fascinating. I never knew that this had happened. As I often say on air, these cases that I've known about for 30 or more years, that I learned about in the 80s, when I go back and investigate them, I oftentimes mentally will get this thought of, oh well, I'm not going to learn much here. I'll just go back and lay out the cases I know it. And Lionel, every time, I'm astounded to find out some new piece of information, some new testimony, some new angle on it. And so I'm constantly learning as well. And to me, it's a beautiful thing, learning along with the audience, this co-learning with them. And it keeps my mind always hungry for more of these, more of these tales and cases. And as you were saying of the Flannan Lighthouse, the gentlemen on the islands in that time in 1900, I believe it was, those men in those lighthouses were the equivalent of astronauts being in outer space. They were completely on their own and cut off. Very much so. It's a great parallel. And uh, just looking here, I'd love to have your opinion on the Barbados coffins. <laughs> you know where the Honourable Thomas Chase, who was buried on the 9th of August, 1812, when uh, Combermere, Lord Combermere, was the governor of uh, Barbados, how the coffins were all over the place. And it never solved, and in fact, I like Combermere's approach. You can tell he was a, a former, a successful military man. When he'd, uh, when he'd have had this going on for three or four months, and people all over Barbados, very, very worried and frightened by it, Combermere said, right, take them all out, give them a whole leak in the churchyard, six foot down. And that was the end of the Barbados coffin. <laughs> <laughs> and I would fully agree with his approach as well. Let's get on with the other things, like governing the island and taxation, and all the things we must do. But I found it fascinating that he's a man who fought in the Napoleonic Wars. This was not just some bureaucrat that had been posted to Barbados, but a real man of action. And once he had decided that, I put my seal on the plaster, and I've spread this river sand and everything else, and it's beyond my understanding, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. We're just going to put the matter to bed, so to speak, and move on. I mean, that's a really practical man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is. I would love to know what was really causing those movements. Oh, there may oh. have been. Because they were all, um, they were very heavy wooden coffins, but they were then coated in lead. I'm just wondering if it was anything that could affect metal, if it was some sort of, well, not a vibration, but some sort of radiation from deep down in the earth that would move metal. I, it, it's only a, a very flimsy suggestion, but it's, 
Oh, is it, it a possibility? Oh, or was it was it something psychic rather than physical? I, I just don't know. And I, I'd love to know what what explanation would you put for? Well, uh, this one's really difficult, Lionel. As uh, as with yourself, I find it very difficult to explain this. Um, honestly, my motivation to do that episode was that over the month of October, I just decided, I made the captain's call, so to speak, that I wanted to do some of these stories that I'd heard about in the past and, and some of these kind of spooky stories for Halloween. And uh, as I'm a one-man band, I can do what I like. So I said to myself, I'm just going to cover over some of these astounding stories, you know, myths and legends in quotations, because as I say, I do believe with so many of these, there's at least a, a good weight of truth to them. Well, anyway, these ones that I've heard from different places over the years, and I wanted to do the Barbados Coffins because I read about it when I was a boy. But when I heard your excellent rendition of the tale on Coast to Coast, it just pulled me right in to say, this is something I think everyone should hear about. And as I looked into it, some of the newer explanations that I've heard are, for example, that it was a lightning strike. It had to do with lightning striking the church, and that somehow this electrical field traveled into the ground, as you say, very similar to a magnetic force, and perhaps it magnetized the lead, because the explanation I read stated that, look, I'm no scientist, but what they said was that a magnetic charge can be impelled into things like lead for a very short time, and just won't last longer than a few minutes. And perhaps this was what pushed these coffins apart. Yes, uh, that's uh, certainly rational and sensible. And uh, I don't associate this mystery with anything in the way of strange spirit forces going in and pressing <laughs> their, 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 expressing their sort of disapproval of the uh, um it, it's just it's just a mystery uh, the other thing i'd love to know what you think about oak island oak island is a is, you know, is a Nova fascinating Scotia. one it uh, intrigues me one of the things um, i wondered was connected with the templates but i'd love to hear your opinion well the romantic part of me my romantic side definitely wants it to be the templars no doubt and I've followed very closely the TV series, The Curse of Oak Island, and they've found objects that seem to link the site back to that time, the most famous among them being the lead cross that they found on the beach that was linked back to France, and the prison at Dome where the Templars were held, and the cross drawings on the wall there being very similar to the lead cross. If I had to posit a guess, I would say that there are multiple different groups secreting away different things, almost like a bank. And the only thing that I can think in my mind that makes sense is that through some type of esoteric or brotherhood-type situation, this knowledge was passed among groups that may seem disparate, but at the same time, there may be less obvious connections. For example, when you look at groups like the Masons or Masonic Order, they ascribe to no religion or nationality. Perhaps it was something like this. These different groups, let's say you have a Spanish galleon, and the captain is in on this knowledge, and they knew that they were going to be trapped in the Atlantic. Maybe his ship had been damaged by a hurricane or a storm, for example. And he said, I know just the place we can go and secret this treasure, because in his mind, there were other very valuable objects already there. And one of the most fascinating things that I've personally seen is how researchers have looked at the actual oak trees on the island, and that they link back to Europe. 
These oak trees originally came from Europe to the Americas, as they are not native to the New World. Right, right. Yes, that, that is, I think, very significant that they were European oak. And the, the thought that occurs to me, if it is either the Templars or some older group who became identified as Templars when it suited them, we might call them guardians or the watchers. Right. They right. would go back a long, long way, very elite um, Benign, um, good people, but uh, hence I would refer to them as guardians or watchers. Yes. And yes, if if they had been involved with that uh, mystery of Beranger Sonnier down in oh, South yes. France, oh, yes, that's another one that's always fascinated us. And if it had been known that the uh, French kings were getting very interested in something that Sonnier and his group had hidden away very carefully. And the, uh, the Templar fleet took it with them. And it was uh, when Philip IV had a go at the Templars on October the 13th, uh, Friday, of course, Friday the 13th, in 1307, if that Templar fleet escaped, did they take that holy treasure from the south of France that Beranger Sonnier had been hanging on to? Did they take that to Oak Island? It would be the equivalent in those days of if we wanted to hide a treasure and we had friends who were astronauts, yes. we'd hide it on yes. the moon. And we want to get it as far away from Philip IV as we can. And we want to get it somewhere that is almost impossible to reach. And uh, I think there is still something of enormous value to be uncovered on the island. But the other thing that fascinates me, and I love your opinion, is the skill, the subterranean architectural skill that created the money pit. It is oh. fantastic. It's, I've stood at the top of it with Dan Blankenship, and Dan was eminently, I was very sorry, Tigris. Yes. When we knew him, um, he was so resolute and so highly intelligent and so practical. And Dan was convinced that somebody with amazing practical ability and very high intelligence had created the money pit. He said it was so. So good. He also thought that there were perhaps other passageways leading off it to other secret storerooms. Right. It would make Oak Island into the sort of treasure capital of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, for so long, archaeologists said, well, this is impossible. Pirates or other groups, they would never be so silly as to store all of their treasures in one place. And then they found that fascinating pirate bank in Tortuga, I believe it was. And they basically found that several of these pirate captains had a communal bank. You would visit the main tunnel there, and you would dig your deposit box, so to speak, off to one side, and you would know that that was your side, and if anybody else went there, you left a few nasty surprises in the form of booby traps to keep them out. But as with so much in life, maybe this is the cynical side of me, but I do enjoy it when historians and scientists in general 
every once in a while are proven completely wrong. And I can just sit back and say, aha, you didn't know everything after all, now did you? <laughs> right, I go along with that. And uh, I think that one day, if they ever disclose it to the public, um, somebody will find what that main treasure was. Oh, yes. It will be something oh, yes. totally amazing. Another thing I'd love to have your opinion on, do you remember the uh, two ladies who were in Versailles in 1900? Oh, yes. Um, Charlotte Mobley and Eleanor Jourdain. Love to have your opinion on what they saw. Well, it's like you were saying just a little while back, Lionel, in this conversation. I know when we were talking about the possibility of, for example, that the Roman soldiers being a replay or a movie-type phenomenon, the most fascinating thing to me was the very similar, not to steal your thunder, Lionel, but your own theory that potentially a lot of these time slips, when a person is in the right time in the right place, whether it be a weather phenomenon or whether it could just be the Earth is in the right rotation on the right day, it is almost like they trip the switch on a movie projector and then it plays out in front of you. The Versailles case, and also the one with the couple in the 1970s. I believe that they traveled to France from the UK and they stayed at the Old Inn. They interacted with the gendarme and I thought it was so fascinating that they only paid 10 francs or 20 francs for this beautiful room and had dinner and everything else included in the cost. And the husband remarked on how cheap it was. And so on their return trip, they went to stay there again because it was such a good value. But not only could they not find the inn, but when they actually tracked someone down in the village and asked about this inn where they stayed and described whom they interacted with, there was an astounding twist in the tale. So the villager took them to see the oldest man in the village. And he basically said that those clothes were what the gendarme wore in the 1870s and 1880s and they hadn't worn them since long before the First World War. But it was almost like these people went into an interactive ride at Disneyland. On that particular day, the door was open. And then tomorrow that door is closed, and you can't go through that path anymore until the next time it opens, in a few days, or perhaps in a hundred years. I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. But it was an amazing adventure that they had. Oh, amazing. yes. Those time slip tales. They're so fascinating to me, and it does make me wonder, for example, there was the RAF pilot that was flying over England in the mid-1930s, and he flew over this airfield, and he saw these men in blue overalls, and he saw these planes, monoplanes, with only one wing, and meanwhile, here he is flying in his biplane with double wings. So when he landed at the base he was flying to, he went to the base commander and asked them about these monoplanes. He said, what are these new planes I know nothing about? as he was a wing commander, after all. And they said to him, You're crazy. We don't have any planes like that. And then some years later, near the beginning of World War II, they changed the engineer's overalls from blue to brown. I just found it astonishing. It was almost like he just had that window in time for a brief moment. The field he flew over in his own time had been abandoned and had cracks in the runway. They weren't using it. And yet he'd seen it with these planes and crew and indeed the airfield was later repaired and put back into service shortly before World War II. Why not? And that was the thing that stuck out in his mind. He was thinking, what's this new advanced plane that I don't know about? And from memory, he was an officer, and that's why he was so perturbed, because he was saying, why are they keeping this from me? I'm an officer. Why don't I know about this latest, greatest airplane? Yeah, indeed. Indeed. But uh, looking again... 
at that general point that we were enjoying about the universe being so mysterious yeah, yes. yeah, yes. and that the mysteries are of so many different kinds. It's well, look, through a picture of you, be walking through an international art gallery, and in one of the wings, you've got portraits, another wing is landscapes, and then you've got some battle scenes, and then you've got um, animals, you know, horses and, um, and wild animals, and all of these amazing canvases are revealing just part of the mystery of life on Earth, whether it's the people in the portrait gallery or the animals or the, the flowers and the trees. And uh, there's some wonderful pictures being painted of fish being yes. lifted out of yes. the water. And it's looking through a gallery of that. You say to yourself, this is so mysterious that there's that same pulse of life and existence and self-awareness in the fish and the gorillas and the horses and the human beings. And you look around and say, well, why is it like this? How has it, let me take Darwinism, okay? And if something is evolving satisfactorily, it will survive. And then along will come something else that's a little bit different and significantly different. But it takes you back to the, the sort of the ultimate and fundamental question of why. How did it get here? What it? That's what it puzzles me. Is there one gigantic mind or God? at the back of it. I say that as a theologian, as one of the Right. And then I was listening to a broadcaster's program in which this guy was arguing that the stars were possibly brain cells in the mind of a, an enormous divine being. That he said that the universe, and, and we are like the, we, the human beings on this tiny planet, are like the subatomic particles in the in the brain of this gigantic cosmic entity. Uh, I found that staggering that anybody could have thought of that, that, that these stars, which are such huge distances apart, are actually nothing more than brain cells in this in this one colossal being. And you think, wow. And uh, hey man, I'm a you know, I'm a neutron. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it would certainly bring a new meaning to that old saying, Lionel, that uh, God is all around us, uh, wouldn't it? It certainly would, yes, it certainly would. <laughs> wow. No. Anyway, I got to go in a couple of minutes because I've got some more bits I've got to get finished this up. No, of course. It's been wonderful talking to you, John, and we must, uh, we must keep in good, close touch because... If either of us comes across another mystery, it would be lovely to share it with the investigator friend who is also interested in the same things. Well, there are definitely some down here in New Zealand I'm going to cover that I just haven't gotten to yet. But one of the really fascinating ones to me is from back when New Zealand was part of the British Empire. And I'm sure you've heard of it, but maybe you haven't. But I would think you've heard of it 
Have you heard of the pink and white terraces, Lionel? No, I'd love to hear about that before I go. Yes, please. So the pink and white terraces were located in the central plateau of New Zealand's North Island, the area where a lot of tourists come here and go to see, because it is gorgeous, and short of going to the Southern Alps and South Island, you've got the mountains, you've got beautiful large and deep lakes, you've got forests, you've got hot water spas. It reminds me of where I'm from. Like I say, the Lakes District, something like that in the UK. You have trout fishing and fairly crisp weather compared to other parts of the island. Well, anyway, there was this lake called Rotomahana, and on the shores of this lake were these amazing terraced formations of hot water springs. It almost looked like the crop terraces in Southeast Asia, but much, much closer together. And it was all formed by silica bubbling up out of the ground and people would come all the way from the UK, and indeed from around the world, back in the 1850s and 1860s, to come here and bathe in these natural hot water mineral baths, for health and beauty reasons. In Victorian times it was called the eighth wonder of the world, and it was basically New Zealand's entire tourist economy at the time. Well, they had, as you often do in areas like this, like Vesuvius and Pompeii and other volcanic regions, they started having earth tremors, kind of forewarning, that something was going on. There was a local Maori, I can't think of the proper term for him, but a witch doctor, a shaman, would be the equivalent, and he had even been ostracized by the local iwi, so they all thought he was crazy, and the type that would lay the hex on you or the evil eye, and so generally they avoided him, and he lived by himself out in the country in his house. So the story goes that he told the local chiefs several times that basically he was cheapening this sacred site, taking commission from painters and visitors to come and paint the pink and white terraces. And they were also using tourist things to decorate the sacred meeting house. And he basically said that this was taboo, and if you continue to do this, you're going to bring about the Iwi's demise. And of course the chief had a good source of income, and he said, yeah, you know, this guy is touched in the head. We will just leave him to do his own thing, and so he ignored his warnings. And the shaman said, my home, up to the roof and above, will be covered in stones and rocks. And this was like the size of an old English cottage. You're probably talking 10 to 12 feet high. And everyone thought, well, again, this is just him being eccentric or dramatic, and they ignored him. Well, sure enough, they proceeded to have a tremendous eruption nearby from Mount Tarawira. But before the eruption happened, there was a party crossing this lake in a canoe. And they saw coming from the opposite direction a phantom canoe, is how they described it. And it was full of Maori warriors. And later, when they were dissecting the story, they found out that no one had seen a canoe like this for several hundred years, because this was a particular type of war canoe, or waka, that they used in the old days, that they would use to capture enemies to enslave them, and this practice hadn't been used in this area for a very, very long time. And some of the iwi asked the shaman about the phantom canoe, and he said, have you seen it? They said yes, and he said that it meant the destruction of everything around by the mountain. Well, basically, within a few weeks, the volcano erupted and buried several villages, buried the entire area under ash and stones. Many of them felt that this was the shaman's fault. Over a hundred people died, and they felt he had caused it to happen. So they left him alone, and after three days it was the Europeans who went and dug him out of his home, as the Iwi wanted no part of him. Indeed, later when he died in the sanatorium, they refused his body and told the Pakia to do what they wanted with him. So they felt that this was the premonition, in hindsight of course, as is so often the case, to tell them that it was basically the end of the world, because they had a tradition that if you saw this phantom waka, it was to portend the end of the world. 
Wow, that's an amazing mystery to investigate. And it's one of those where they've gone and taken submersibles in this lake. They knew it existed because it wasn't one of those things that was only a local legend. It was painted and drawn, and there are even photographs of it. But they have found it may actually have survived the explosion and may be underwater on the floor of this lake, buried under ash and all this other debris. Wow. That is an amazing tale. Well, I'm very honored that I had one up my sleeve, so to speak, that you hadn't heard of, Lionel. Yeah, I haven't come across that one. Marvelous. Anyway, we must keep in touch with each other. And, uh, it's been a, and it's been a lovely, lovely time for me. I've enjoyed every minute. <laughs> and uh, as I'm just sorry, I've got to push on to the next yeah. job now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lionel. You're a true legend. I appreciate you taking the time to fulfill a dream of mine and for the audience. And we'll be uh, we'll be in touch again before too long. <laughs> that, I'll just say I wish that, you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Uh, bye for now. Take care.